Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 25, and he will never let you down. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, as we come before your word, we believe, first of all, that it is true and that it is without error, and it is without the possibility of error, that it's for every area of our life, that what you intend to do through our study of your word is to take it and to plant it deeper and deeper into our hearts, into our minds, to help us to grow to be more like Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at this great text before us, I I pray not only that you would do that, but that you would help us. You would help us to see even more the the greatness of your grace and your majesty and your glory as we consider what your word has to say to us now. And Lord, I pray that this, this word would land in the good soil of our hearts, that we would not only consider what it says and what it means, but that by your spirit, you would take it and you would drive it home into our hearts, into our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it's true and that it is enough for us. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 25. Psalm 25, and we're marching right through the book of Psalms, week by week, right? It's been a good study so far, I think. Psalm 25 says this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed, who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is a man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. 
My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The trouble of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all of his troubles. This is a reading of God's precious word. If you're a fan of Downtown Abbey, and by the way, this is a, only an example, you'll never forget Lady Edith's wedding. After years of disappointment, the sun finally shone on her as she got ready to marry Sir Anthony Strollin. And even Lady Mary was, was happy for her. The great house prepared for the big day. The carriage pulled up to the front door and she was carried to the church in style. And as she walked down the aisle, Lady Edith seemed truly happy for the first time. She was the forgotten sister. Mary and Sybil have gotten all the attention, but there she was, standing with Sir Anthony as the minister began. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here. But then Sir Anthony interrupted the minister, mumbled, I can't do this, and he left her at the altar. The rejection and the humiliation of that moment is unforgettable. And this is the sort of public rejection, humiliation. It's the kind of shame that David is thinking about in the opening lines of Psalm 25, 1 through 3, which says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They, they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Now, shame in this context is more than just embarrassment or feeling foolish. It is the humiliation that comes from being rejected and abandoned. To make it even worse, it is the humiliation of being rejected and abandoned by God. In fact, imagine putting all your hope in God for this life and the next, only for him to leave you at the altar. This is more than embarrassing. It's it's devastating. And we need to ask the question, why would David be worried that God would humiliate him like this? Well, there's two problems here that are weighing on David's mind. First, he asks the question, will God realize what a sinner I have been and what a sinner I still am? And will he finally see the truth about me and reject me? And second, David's enemies hate him with a passion. The stakes are high. If God does not stand with David, he knows he will amount to nothing. And let's be honest. If we're honest here, David's fears are our fears. We wonder, if, if people find out who I really am and, and what I've really done, will, will they even like me? Will they want anything to do with me? If my spouse finds out about me, Will they still love with me? In fact, all of us ask the question at some point, how could God put up with a sinner like me? Will he see who I really am and drop me like a bad habit? 
And we also feel overwhelmed and discouraged because the world seems to be against us. There are people who hate us because we are Christians. We have a great enemy, the devil, who wants to destroy us. If God turns against us, we will be doomed. In verse 3 is our great hope. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. God is faithful. Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 make it clear that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And what that means is he will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He will never, ever leave you at the altar. What Psalm 25 is going to teach us is what it means to wait on the Lord and hope in him. Now think about this. We all can drive through McDonald's or Jack in a Box or Carl's Jr. And depending on what part of the country you're in, in and out and Whataburger and on and on and on. And just insert, if you're in the Europe or Asia listening to this, insert your favorite fast food restaurant or place that you go to your or, or favorite coffee place. And you drive through there. We are accustomed in our modern world to getting what we want when we want it. We, we, we want to, to get a food order, so we order the food, and even in some parts of the world, we can have that delivered to our home. So we don't ever have to leave. We can, we can even have, in some parts of the world, our groceries delivered to us, and so we don't need to go to the store. Or in some parts of the world, we can, like I do, we can drive up, we can have our groceries loaded in our car, and we drive off. We, we are not accustomed in our modern world to waiting for anything. And we are bad at it. As a teaching psalm, Psalm 25 is an acrostic with few variations. Each line starts with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This makes for good poetry, and it makes it easier to memorize, provided you know Hebrew. But even if you speak English, this is a psalm to be learned so that you can have confidence in God. How does David wait for God here? How do we wait for God? How do we trust him with patience and complete confidence, especially in the hard things of life? Well, we see four aspects to David's waiting here in Psalm 25. He waits in obedience. He waits in confession. He waits in fear. And he waits in prayer. With this, David holds on to his hope. None who wait for you will be put to shame. So first, let's consider we wait in obedience. In fact, David starts with obedience in our text. In Psalm 25, 4-5, he says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truths and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Let's be honest here. We cannot pretend to be waiting on the Lord, if we're not willing to obey what the Lord says and what the Lord has revealed. Let's stop here for just a second. What God has revealed in the 66 books of the Word of God, you know, 39 in the in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, it's enough for us. It's enough. Jesus in John 5, 39 says, you search the scriptures because they testify of me. In Luke 24, Jesus is on the road to 
Emmaus, and he interprets Luke 24, 27, tells us that 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 Jesus interpreted to the, these disciples on the road to Emmaus the writings the, and, and the, the Old Testament. And he pointed these disciples from the Old Testament to himself. You see, the only way to know God is to know him as he's revealed himself in the word of God. And because he has revealed himself, we can know him. We can know who Christ is. We can know what he has done for us. And when we know that, Jesus says in John 14, 15, we are to obey the commandments of God. Now, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30, that the, these commandments are not burdensome. Because his yoke is easy. For those who are in Christ, those who are in un- vital union with him, they enjoy a new standing and a new identity in Christ. We can commune with and enjoy our Lord because he has revealed himself in the word of God. And this provides a very reason why we can obey the Lord. Why we would even want to obey the Lord. Why we would desire to obey the Lord. Now Jesus says this same thing about we can't pretend that we're waiting on God if we do not do what he says. If we say we trust God but do not obey, we're going to lose everything. Hear what Jesus says in Luke 6, 46-49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. This is why we need to care about the foundation of our lives. This is why we as Christians... Ground our lives in the word of God. And we not only ground them in the word of God, but as Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? That's the gospel. How do we know the gospel? We know it because it's in the word of God. So that the more that we grow in our understanding of the word of God, the more that we're building on the rock of the foundation of God's word, and the more that we will desire to then obey God so that the foundation of our lives as Jesus' teaching are dug deep and the foundation goes down deep into the soil bed of our hearts so that we're rooted and grounded and being established in the word of God. So the first step here is a commitment to obey the Lord, as David waits on God, he first asks God to teach him. He waits as a disciple, a learner, a man who is committed to follow God. God's ways and God's paths start with specific decisions. One step after another, these decisions 
turn into a lifestyle, a path that pleases God. God has to show us how to obey him. Notice the verbs that David uses in verses 4 through 5 of Psalm 25. Make me to know, teach me, lead me. Why do we need God to teach us how to obey? Can't we just let our conscience be our guide? Can't we just let our feelings be our guide? Why, why, why do we have to have our behavior regulated by the word of God? In fact, why do we even need the Bible at all? Can't we just flip open a page and point to a verse and that'll help us? We cannot assume we can figure out how to obey God on our own without the help of the word of God. For one thing, there is every chance that our hearts will deceive us. As Jeremiah 17 tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things. In fact, Psalm 14 says, we have all become corrupt. Our hearts are bad in Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3 in Romans 7, 18. And we need to remember how small and how limited we really are. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declared the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If we think we can figure out the right path on our own, we have no idea, very little understanding of just the depths of our sin. If an ant is crawling on a beach ball, it cannot see where it's going or, or where it will ever go. God looks down on the world that he created, and he sees how we should live. See, if we want to follow God and please him, the place to begin is to read and study the word of God. A proud man assumes he knows what God wants. A humble man or woman says, Lord, teach me. In fact, it's striking that David asked God to teach him, even though he was an inspired writer of Scripture. What's more, since David mentions the sins of his youth a few verses later, he probably wrote this psalm near the end of his life. This is not the prayer of an immature man, a boy who's just learning to shave. David knows his own heart over the course of many years. He, he knew what he was capable of doing, and he'd wrestle with the complex questions that life throws at us. If we think we are no longer need God to open our eyes, to lead us, to reveal the truth, we are in danger. In fact, even if we grew up in the church or we have been Christians for some time, it's easy to assume that we know what to do, to trust in our own selves, to please God, to live up to his expectations because we know them. The problem is we need divine power, the power that comes from the Holy Spirit through abiding in Christ to actually please God. The older we are in the Lord, the more mature we are in Christ, the more we should realize how much we need the Lord to guide us in everyday life. And this is a why, as this is a mature David who says in Psalm 25, verse 4, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. He helps, David is praying to live a godly life, a life that honors the Lord, that glorifies God. And so God 
teaches us through his word, the Bible. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is true. You see the man or the Christian man or woman who wants to obey God, they want to understand more of the Bible so they can follow what it says and live by the truth. We can't understand God's word on our own. We need God to lead us, to teach us the truth as we read. Psalm 25.5 is a good prayer for us as we sit down with our Bibles every day. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. The second thing we're going to see in this text is we are to wait in confession. It's not enough to commit ourselves to obey God. Even if, if David turned over a new leaf and never sinned again, David still had a past. God knew who he had been and what he'd done. God knew that he would stumble again in the future, and so David asked for forgiveness. And so what we're going to see is David keeping short accounts with God. Martin Luther, that great reformer, tells tells us that the Christian life is a life of repentance. Calvin said the same thing. The Puritans modeled what this looked like for us. It's a life of, uh, like Calvin, running down the list of our sins. Not not to be morbidly introspective and not to beat ourselves up, but to but to look down and and to have a sober assessment of our lives and to turn and trust the Lord. As 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When was the last time you even even thought, even as a Christian, about your many sins? Have you ever even thought of them? What about what about your sins of the eyes? What about the sins of your tongue? What about, what about the the sins of your heart? You know these these things are weighty. They're weighty. In the contemporary church, we don't even want to talk about in these ways, talk about it in this way because we're so afraid that that somebody is going to be soberly morbidly introspective that that they'll never get out of being morbidly introspective but the, but the problem is is that, is that the bible deals with real the real life real people who lived in real history in real time in real space and this is why we can trust the bible one of the many reasons we can trust the bible the Bible doesn't gloss over the failures of, of David himself. Instead, the Bible helps us to see, here's a flawed man, and yet God used him. In our own lives, we are all frail. We are all weak. We are all like sheep in need of a shepherd. And that is why Jesus Christ has come. That is why Jesus Christ has bled and died in our place and for our sin, because we think that we are enough. Maybe you have an advanced degree, and so you think that you don't need to be taught anything. You don't need to know anything more. I can tell you, as somebody with those degrees, I still need the truth. 
I still need to be in the Bible. I still need the means of grace. I still need to be growing. I still need to grow and learn more. And the reason is, like, like we just saw with the psalmist, lead me in your truth, teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Where else can we get to know this God? Where else can we de- delve even deeper into the depths and the mystery and the heights and the depths of God's grace? How else can I have my sin addressed with, addressed directly by God? But in the word of God. But unlike many today who, who struggle with assurance, David does something profound. As he confesses his sins, he asks for grace. He asks God both to remember and to forget. Psalm 25, 6-7 says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And so what David does here is he focuses on the character of God. He asks God to remember how good he is. Now the word mercy here is related to the Hebrew word for womb. This mercy is the gentle companion that a mother has for her baby. God cares for his people with a mother's love. Isaiah 49.15 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, and yet I will not forget you. And David also wants God to remember his commitment to his people. Steadfast love, here is God's committed love, his covenant loyalty to his people. And so if mercy points to a mother's love for her child, then steadfast love points to a husband's love for his wife. It's a covenant love. When a husband vows to love his wife until death do us part, this is steadfast love. God has committed himself to Uh, committed himself by covenant to his people as a husband to his bride. By asking God to remember his steadfast love, David is asking God to remember the wedding vows made to his people when he first called them and chose them to be his very own. And now David also wants God to forget, not to remember his past sins. The verse 7 says, the sins of my youth, who referred to the besetting sins that David struggled with since he was a boy. There's many men, too many, that sadly have struggled with pornography from a very young age. I have a biblical counselor friend, and he told me in the last few months that he has seen an explosion of men coming into his office for counseling and telling him that they were first exposed to pornography when they were a child, a child. And that this sin of their youth has been a battle for them ever since. But this isn't only for men. This is a sin that is now entangling women. And yet the sins of my youth could also be the very things he did when he was young. Many of us, now we blush when we think back to the foolish decisions that we made in high school or maybe junior high or college. If you are young, you need to know that your sins will follow you. Many of us who are older, and I'm not that old, I'm only 41, 
would like nothing more than to have the sins of our youth left in our past. We wish we had a rewind button. We wish we had a do-over button. Much to like we wish that there was an edit button on Twitter. Whether that'll happen or, or not, who knows? But we understand exactly what David is feeling. We don't want God to focus on who we have been or what we've done. We need the grace of God's forgetfulness. Yeah, now let's stop here for a minute. Because of Christ, theologians use these words like propitiation. It means that God no longer holds his wrath against us. And expiation means that, that God no longer remembers, he, that he has removed, as the psalmist says, our sin as far as the east is to the west. And so this is good news. So not only because of Christ, when he says it's finished, God no longer holds the record of our wrongs, against, our sins against us, but he removes them from his sight. That, that, that is astonishingly good news. And if you're a Christian, because of Christ, you have received this kind of grace. Harry Ironside once visited a godly man. He was 90 years old. The man sent for Ironside because, as he put it, everything seemed dark. And so Harry Ironside asked him what was the matter. Since I have been lying here so weak, my memory keeps bringing up the sins of my youth, and I cannot get them out of my mind. They keep crowning in on me, and I cannot help but thinking of them. And so Ironside turned to Psalm 25, and he read, Remember not the sins of my youth according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. And then he said to the man, When he came to God 70 years ago, you confessed your sin, and you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Don't you remember that when you confessed your sins, God said, Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. And if God has forgotten them, why should you think about them? And then the man relaxed and replied, I am an old fool remembering what God has forgotten. The point is, Christian, you have received the grace of God's forgetfulness. And that's such good news. That means that you can hop off that hamster wheel that, that, that Re, if, you have, if you replay your sins over and over and over again in your mind like this old man, and trust me, I've done that, been there, done that. How much is that going to help you? How much is it going to help you to, to remember that offense that maybe your parents did to you all those years ago or, or somebody in your church did to you and you replay it over and over again and you get angrier and angrier and, and you get more bitter and more bitter? How is that going to help you in your walk with God? Instead, what you need to remember, you need to remember the costly grace of God. You need to remember that you have received the grace of God's forgetfulness. And David feels this grace so deeply because he stops his prayer and he turns to teach everyone who reads this psalm. Now he's no longer talking to God, he is talking about God. Psalm 25, 8 through 10 says, Good and upright is the Lord. And therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. 
See, God teaches sinners who admit their sin and listen to the Lord as he has revealed himself in the word. In fact, God humbles himself to be an instructor. He doesn't have to do this since we're sinners. He would be fully justified in dropping the hammer on us and condemning us for all eternity into hell. And yet because he's good and because he's upright, he teaches men and women who will humble themselves to listen to him as he has revealed himself in the word of God. This is why the only way to know God is in the word of God. It isn't out there in nature, although we can we can know God in a generic general sense by looking at the stars, by looking at the moon, by looking at the trees, by enjoying the nature and the world in which he has created. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. But specifically, the only way to know God is to know him as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. This is good news. It means that God has not left us abandoned. Some people today say that God is totally disinterested in us. If God is disinterested in us, guess what? You would cease to exist for even a nanosecond, for even half of a decimal of, of, of a nanosecond. How's that? It means that you wouldn't exist at all. Because the God of the Bible upholds the universe by the word of his power. He gives you life and breath. Even the breath you use to curse him and reject him, God gave you that as well. What this means, though, is something really, really important. It means there's hope for me. There's hope for you. And if you're not a Christian, you might have met Christians who wanted nothing to do with you because they were, quote unquote, good people. They were holy rulers. And so you figured God must be the same since he's good. He, he won't touch me. I'm just untouchable. But the Bible says the opposite. And David in our text says the opposite. God welcomes sinners and he teaches them because he is good. The Bible says that Jesus looks for the best in you. He's, he aims to restore the image of God that was marred by the fall. Isaiah 42, 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. God is so good that he reclaims sinful men and women through the person and the work of Jesus. He makes us into what we should be. And if we'll listen to the word of God and as he's revealed himself therein in the 66 books of scripture and follow him, he will teach us through the word of God. We need that. We need it. David also asks for forgiveness. He is not satisfied to ask God simply not to remember his sins. He wants the slate completely clean. Psalm 25, 11 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Our tendency today is to do the opposite of what David says. David is asking God to pardon him. What, 
we want to do is we want to cover over our sin. We, we, we made an egregious error or we sinned egregiously. We don't want our spouse to know. We don't want them to ever find out. So we'll minimize it. We'll hide it. We'll, 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 we'll compartmentalize it. In fact, if we were writing verse 11, we might say, Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is small. But, but David doesn't plead the smallness of a sin. He pleads for pardon because of the greatness of his sins. His situation is so desperate that nothing less than full pardon will do. Oh, I know that many of you feel the overwhelming guilt of your sin. In fact, you're so morbidly introspective about your sin, you have a hard time looking up to Christ. But if you feel the overwhelming weight of your sin, you are in a good starting place. Like David, you can call out to God and say in verse 11, pardon my guilt for it is great. And, and you might wonder, how, how exactly can God pardon my great sin? The reason he can forget the sins of our youth and forgive great guilt is because Jesus actually bled and died and rose again. If your sin is a backpack of guilt and shame, Jesus took the backpack from your shoulders and carried it for you on the cross. Don't believe me? Read the story of John and John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's a, it's a beautiful story, and it's grounded in God's Word. Christian lays down his, the burden of his guilt because he picks up the cross of Christ and takes Christ at his word in the Pilgrim's Progress. Any Christian who is in union with Christ has done the same. We have believed Christ, and Christ has imputed his righteousness to our accounts. And this is all a gift of God, not of ourselves, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we would, so that we might not boast. In fact, 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Today, if you minimize your sin, you minimize what Jesus did on the cross. And so the greater my guilt, the greater his forgiveness, and the greater the glory of Jesus who won that forgiveness. If you minimize your sin, you are guilty of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of cheapening the grace of God. The costly grace of God. Jesus is glorified in forgiving the greatest sinners in the same way that a doctor is honored when people bring him the hardest cases. Now, the Mayo Clinic is famous as a great hospital, not because they can cure small things, but because people come from all over the world with the most desperate diseases. Christ is willing to forgive the greatest sinners because this is how he receives the greatest glory. Now stay with me here. Christ, he died to save sinners. He welcomes even the worst. Now Jesus is like John Hopkins or the MD Anderson Cancer Center, not the local urgent care clinic. He is not a savior who can only handle small sinners. His blood is powerful enough to save great sinners. And this is a huge comfort Today you're worried that God will finally realize what you've done, who you really are. 
and leave you at the altar like Lady Edith. But our Lord, he forgives the sins of your youth. We are all great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. His grace is greater than all of our sins. And when we wait on God and put our trust in him, we wait in confession. And that's a good thing. Because our Savior, our Lord Jesus is sufficient. Third, when we put our hope in God, we wait in fear. Now, we need to ask, how does David move here from forgiveness to fear? And this may surprise you because you would think that fear would be the last thing on David's mind after he just spoke about God's forgiveness. In fact, some people think that forgiveness is an excuse not to fear and to sin even more, but that's not what Scripture teaches. And we need to ask the question, how does David move from forgiveness to fear? Well, the power of God is a fearsome thing. And when the disciples were about to sink in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, they called out to Jesus and he stood up and said to the storm, Peace, be still, in Mark 4.39. And immediately the wind stopped and the sea was calm. And when the disciples saw his power, they were terrified in Mark 4.41. In the same way, the power of God's forgiveness is a fearsome thing. He quiets the wind and the waves of guilt and shame in our hearts. Nothing else could bring peace to our troubled conscience. A sense of awe descends on us when we realize that we have experienced the awesome power of God. This kind of power is at once comforting and unsettling. The forgiveness we experience as we put our hope in God leads us to fear Him. Psalm 130, uh, 3-5 says, If you, O Lord, should mark in iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. You see, the fear of God brings a great blessing. After asking God for forgiveness, David turns to us again, and he teaches us. In Psalm 25, 12 through 15, he says this, Who is, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. See, God teaches the man or the woman who fears in verse 12. Students and their families are willing to spend thousands and thousands of dollars a year for their child to go to a school, to the best schools, to sit under the best teachers. God himself, the one who created the universe, though personally tutors those who trust him as they read and study the word of God and as they avail themselves of the means of grace through the preaching of God's word in the local church. You might be wondering, well, how does God teach today? He teaches us through the Word. Sometimes the Bible gives us direct commands to follow. Sometimes the Bible equips us with wisdom to make a good decision. God also teaches us through fellow believers He places in our lives. And sometimes God speaks to our hearts. He does that through His Word. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Those whose hearts are right shall not err for want of heavenly direction. Where God sanctifies the heart, he enlightens the mind. And with this, God promises his friendship. To be God's friend is more than knowing about him. Friends enjoy each other's 
company. Friendship is close. It's personal knowledge. Just one thing for God to teach us which path to take. That's a blessing. For God to make us his friends is almost inconceivable, and yet that's what he's done. Apple CEO Tim Cook offered to have coffee for an hour with up to two people. The only catch is going to cost you $210,000. And yet, we need to understand God is not selling his time. He offers us his friendship. He opens up his heart to those who fear him, those who tremble at his word and learn and discover who he is and what he is like as he has revealed himself in the word of God. Do you fear the Lord? This blessing is yours in Christ. John 15, 15 says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all I have heard from my Father have made known to you. You see, God, God blesses those who fear the Lord. And the last point that we have today is we wait in prayer. And finally, notice that we wait in prayer. David turns once again to call out to God with seven specific petitions. Psalm 25, 16 through 21 says this, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my troubles and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Will you, will God hear this prayer or will he leave David standing before the altar? Well, David has already answered this question in verse 3. No, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Why? Because God hears the prayers of his people and he will deliver us. And in case we think that this confidence is just for David, verse 22 tells us that he is speaking for all of God's people. When he says, redeem Israel, God, out of all his troubles. And this last line opens the psalm to make it a prayer for all who would know Christ. We will never know the humiliation of being abandoned and rejected by God because the promises of God are true. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Titus 1.2 tells us that God will never lie. That is because God stands behind his word and God is faithful. And as Hebrews 13, 5 and 9 says, he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So we can trust him. And not only can we trust him, but Romans 8, 31 through 39 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of being united to Christ by faith in his name. And so if we trust the Lord, you will never, ever, ever be left at the altar. You will never be disappointed. You will never be let down. Praise God for that. In fact, you know what? The only proper response to that is to lift up your hands and to lift up your hearts and to sing endless praises to God. And that's what's so amazing about what happens in Revelation 5. These elders... They've been given great crowns and great glory, and they cast down their crowns before the one who is worthy. See, he is worthy. He 
is worthy. He's an immutable God. He's unchanging and he is unrelenting. He is consistent. He is coherent and he will never let us down. All the promises of God are yes and amen, as Paul says. And that's good news because on the hardest of days when life seems to be, seems the hardest and things seem to be beating you down, you need a sure word, a better word, and that word comes in the word of God, which centers at the center of scripture is the promise of Christ. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews is all about how Christ is sufficient in every way. And he's a sufficient high priest. He's a sufficient intercessor. He's uh, first uh, John 2 tells us he is a sufficient advocate. Jesus is sufficient. Behind the word of God is Jesus. So we can trust him. We can take him at his word. We can learn from Jesus. We can open our Bibles and study it, read and study it with full confidence that this is what God has said. And so we will believe it. And we will not only believe it, but we will obey it because of our union with Christ and because we're in communion with Christ. If you're not in this vital union with Christ, I plead with you today to repent and believe in Christ and be saved, as Acts 16.31 says. And then, no matter what you've done, no matter who you think you are, and no matter what you've done, your Savior longs to meet with you. Your shepherd, the shepherd of your soul, the one who made you and fashioned you in your mother's womb, as Psalm 139 says, he longs to meet with you and to save you, to rescue you from your sins. To reconcile you to God. Today, dear Christian, you have a shepherd, you have a high priest, you have an intercessor, whoever lives to plead the merits of his own blood, the treasure of his own blood before the Father as your intercessor and advocate. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we we are so thankful that we can just take you at your word. On our hardest days, when it seems like life is going to just absolutely destroy us, we can take you at your word. We can trust you. So we thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that your promises are yes and amen in Christ. We thank you that we have a a high priest Whoever lives to plead the merits of his own, the treasure of his own blood on our behalf, 24 hours and seven days a week. What an incredible thing. And what an incredible Savior you are, Lord. Thank you for this time that you've given to us to open this psalm and to unpack it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. 
If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org. 